Shannon Deep is a writer based in New York City. We are so, so thrilled to have this brilliant writer and thinker in the room with us today. Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. And Shannon Deep, who are you? Um, Who are you? This is like such a huge question. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I mean, on both a metaphysical and a literal, like, who are you on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, um, on a day-to-day basis, I'm a strategic writer and communication strategist at a brand consulting firm. Um, But that's not what my educational background is. uh, I'm a theater artist and a writer, so I uh, majored in creative writing, in drama with a concentration in directing, and then my master's in arts management. And then uh, I decided that I wanted health insurance (laughs) Mm. (laughs) and the 401k. I know. So I was like, well, what else can I do? Just wrap yourself in your art. Yeah. (laughs) You don't need need doctors. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm a writer and I know, and like, that's what I know. And I know how to tell stories because uh, as a dramaturg. Um, so how else is this applicable to the world where someone might pay me a living wage to, to do it? Um, and I found uh, branding and brand consulting. Um, I do a podcast that I do with my writing partner, who is a composer. Um, so every week we take a random Wikipedia article and a random music genre, and then we write a short song about the topic of the Wikipedia article in that style of music and it's usually completely ridiculous and hilarious and ned has been a guest i have on song salad Salad. has the writing always been a part of the plan and the work that you're doing was that part of the goal when you were at school and when you moved here was you were going to be working on your own material um kind of i think i've always been a writer in spite of myself like i've always loved writing and i've always um felt that it came naturally to me but maybe because of that, I didn't think of myself as, oh, this is what I should do with my life because it just seemed like a th- such a natural part of my life. I don't know if that really makes sense. No, but it, absolutely. Um, but I didn't think of it as like a professional uh, goal, really. And when I got involved in theater in high school and then in college, um, I was much more on the directorial behind the scenes kind of uh, production side of things rather than writing. And I think now it is definitely a goal of mine to get my writing out there because I have some things that I've just written and then done nothing with. Um, If found, please call being one of them. Well, now Um, you've done something with it. Yes, now you guys have done something with it. Nailed it. Um, (laughs) So thanks for making that dream come true. Yeah, that's not like a great answer to your question. It absolutely is. <laughs> but, it absolutely um, is. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask everyone to put a moratorium on the on the judgment right now because that was a fantastic answer. I guess my question is how that's been shaped by you have a I'm I'm assuming this this brand branding oh. job is that a nine to five? Now? Yes. Okay. So that I uh, that fascinates saying. me as a nine to fives fascinate me. What a jerk I am. I'm so fascinated by your <laughs> by no, your, but I think li- that your normal life. But this is something that we discuss a lot about how structure imposed in a life, whether for work purposes or other purposes, informs the writing that you do or the work that you do. Has that shifted at all since you've worked there? Definitely. So really, I feel um, freed in a certain way to work on my own projects because my art is not 
I'm not depending on my art to generate income. So because of that, I can go to work every day, know that I'm going to get a paycheck at the end of the week, and then come home and work on whatever I want to work on or record my podcast or write a song and not have to put the pressure of financial stability on the play that I'm writing or the musical that I'm exploring. So, yeah. So where did If Unpleased Call come? What When did it come about? How did it come about? Yeah, this is actually sort of an older play. I think it's from 2012 is when it was, when I first started writing it. So long ago. It was, it was so long ago. It's so old. It was very old. Um, Thanks, Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. This play, I, I really started writing it because of, um, it's what Helena says in the play, which is, do you ever look at those posters of pets and think, did anybody ever find them? And I'm a big animal lover. I have three cats. Uh, They are all rescued from an alley behind my college apartment. And they're, you know, little addled feral cats who are still really socially dysfunctional. And um, yeah, they're just little special snowflakes. But um, they, (laughs) you've met them. They're idiots. (laughs) Not the brightest bulb. No, they aren't. Their developmental months were like licking like hot pocket wrappers and eating Q-tips like in a dumpster. So like their their brains didn't grow the way they were supposed to grow. When I moved to Harlem uh, about four years ago, there was just a proliferation of these lost pet posters. And I was just struck walking by them months later and they're all wrinkled and rain-worn and like the pictures of all runs, they look like little horror movie pictures of like pets. And I was like, who did like, did anybody find that dog? Or, you know, did the cat ever come back? And it really like got to me. And and not like a, I spent my whole life like, you know, huddled in a dark corner, like rocking back and forth, wondering if the pets ever came home. But like, it just planted the seed in my brain of what if someone did get obsessed with, this and uh, what kind of person would have that become a big part of their life that it starts to sort of take over and while the play didn't end up really becoming about that aspect of it it just became a jumping off point what happened with this play was i wrote not the first scene but the the second scene um where she returns the cat and i was like and then from there the characters just sort of spiraled off in their own direction. So I didn't have the plot planned out beforehand or any conflicts necessarily planned out beforehand, but it really all sort of stemmed from that scene, I think. In some ways, this really, the whole play, and one of the things I love about it is that it, it there's a meet cute, it's romantic comedy in really strong ways and really beautiful ways, but there are very good reasons for these two not to work it out. Yeah. Um, and and very good reasons for for the reader or the listener to not root for it. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious where that lives for you. Do you want them to figure it out? Do you, um, um, was that sort of framework of the romantic comedy in your brain when you were writing? No, it really wasn't. And um, I don't love love stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely not, and I, and I have never written a traditional love story. Usually when I write, whether it's um, 
uh, the book to a music, piece of musical theater or a play or a short scene, it's not all about happy endings because I don't believe in soulmates. I don't believe in star-crossed these people were meant to be. I think it's much more interesting to see really flawed people make choices um, and not feel like there's this kind of inevitability or um, predetermined structure that means that they're going to end up together in the end. I think that one of my favorite parts of the show is that uh, that's very true to life, right? You meet somebody and this central thing is happening in your life, but it doesn't stop the difficulty of your relationship with your aging neighbor or your grown adult relationships with your siblings, Mm -hmm. which is always a little stressful no matter how close you are with your siblings or the other things happening in your life um, or your addiction problem or, you know, and and I think that that's really fascinating and keeps it out of this sense of, you know, if this were a movie, we would only get the two of them, right? We would only get the two of them in there and their arc. And that's one of my favorite. The complications are what I f- find so fascinating about Well, that. cool. The first thing I noticed about the play was that it, it put two relationships in a dichotomy. And one of them is on paper very normal. And one of them on paper is not. And the one that is not is the one that feels the most honest to me. And the mm-hmm. other one's just like a big old freaking lie. Mm-hmm. And that struck me in the first read of the play immediately. You know, addiction and mental health are... Um, first of all, completely intertwined. And second of all, it's really, really hard whether you uh, suffer from mental health issues or from issues of addiction to break yourself out of the really unhealthy cycles that surround that. And it becomes a question of, okay, in some instances, how do you live with these things? in a way that is as healthy as possible for you to live with them rather than, oh, poof, you're fixed or you're cured or you're recovered and you're never going to relapse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of compromise is really interesting to me. So how, how can they compromise both personally with themselves and with the imperfections of other people to live the fullest life possible, I think. So you talked about after this process, you may revisit the play. Where are you in the process as a creative person besides this play, or what are the next steps for this play beyond kind of like a rewrite process? Yeah, um, I I don't have any definite next steps for this play. Um, Obviously, if someone hears it and is interested in the play or is interested in the potential of the play, hit me up. Yeah, I'm interested in taking another look at this play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if if there is a collaborator out there, that would be awesome if people are interested in this. Um, I also have a another finished play that actually takes place in Maine. hey Yeah. No, you guys, um, all about the Maine connection. Charging moose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's a whole family of moose. And really? No. Damn it! <laughs> You just broke his heart. Yeah, your eyes lit up. Um, no, it is not about... It's it, It's a big... Um, I would have submitted that play since it's more recent, but um, it's it's huge. There's It's a big family drama um, centered around Thanksgiving, so like kind of good for this time of the year and the mm-hmm. holidays. I have that play that's finished that um, I think I'll, I'll be submitting to 
festivals, contests, like that, that kind of stuff. Um, I have another uh, play that I've started working on. Um, and uh, I also have a musical with my writing partner, Scott Wasserman. Um, and it follows, it was based on um, a real thing that happened in Nebraska, which was in 2008, Nebraska decriminalized child abandonment. Uh, in response to a rise in um, infant murders in the state. Um, so ba- unwanted babies were being born and then killed. Um, and so they thought if we decriminalize child abandonment and make hospitals and fire stations and police stations designated drop-off points, then rather than people <laughs> murdering their children, they'll give them up to foster care. Um, and what ended up happening was I think about three dozen kids were legally abandoned and none of them were infants because they forgot to put an age cap on the law. So really people were driving from California to legally abandon their children. One father abandoned all nine of his children at the same time. And most of these kids were between the ages of like 12 and 16. And we read about that and we were like, wow, that is fucked up. Uh, Also fascinating to imagine as this musical does, what happens when one of those kids who doesn't know how he ended up in foster care grows up and then is contacted by his birth mother. I'm curious, especially with your dramaturgical background and your uh, uh, new play development, all of that fascination, can you tell us your thoughts on kind of the state of theater when it comes to jumping in with new work? Because I, I think one thing a lot of us are familiar with is if your work doesn't fit neatly into a specific box, it can be really hard to find the correct flow chart for development. Yes. Um, and has is that something you've run into with your own work or something you just feel strongly about for work more more generally? Yeah, no, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Like if, if you're not in a box, it's really hard for people to kind of rally behind the work um, because they don't know how to talk about it. So I think that's, it's really hard because Really, I mean, money is the whole linchpin in this situation. And if you want to develop new work, you do need at least some money. And it's very hard to get people to give you money if you can't give them an elevator pitch of your show and list, you know, like three other things that it's like. You know, that's like the classic movie writing advice. It's like blank, but with blank. Um, So, you know, if you're movie is like Die Hard, but with elves or something, then people are like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Right, I, we're going to run it. out of the room <laughs> and, and write movie. that right now. Absolutely. I would watch that movie so hard. Ned will be watching this that movie in hard. his head for the rest of this interview. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm checked out, guys. I'm going to write yeah. that film. <laughs> what uh, for you is is kind of the most inspiring or exciting thing you've been you've been following as a trend in theater like what is it Mm. that you are looking forward to as we enter the next you know decade of theater or whatever it is that like really excites you based on times in the past um so i have i have two answers to that so the first is um perhaps unsurprisingly new musicals that bend genres i i get super excited anytime i see something new different immersive um that 
you know, breaks out of a category. Um, things that like are trying to tell non-traditional stories also. So things that you don't think you could see. Um, yeah, that you never really thought like, oh, that should be a play or, oh, that should be a musical. But then you, uh, someone decides to bring it to the medium rather than exploring the same kinds of stories that the medium always seems to explore. So those things, I think that's really interesting to me. Um, the other uh, sort of maybe a like a little bit of a plug, um, but something that I'm really excited about is um, in grad school, my capstone project, um, I worked with the Southwestern Pennsylvania Center for Deliberative Democracy, which is a mouthful yes. <laughs> to say. Um, I believe they have since changed their name to the Program for Deliberative Democracy, so that's a little bit easier to say. Still um, much of a mouthful. Though. Yes. Um, and through, um, through the Phi Beta Kappa Society, I did a lot of scholarship and work with this particular organization, which is based on a... Um, model of policy discussion where a representative group of constituents is brought into a space. They are furnished with really comprehensive and um, well-researched and fact-checked materials about whatever the policy that is in question is addressing. They are um, allowed to discuss in small groups with a trained moderator. There is a plenary session where they ask an expert panel questions that they have that have arisen out of the small group discussions. Then there is a second uh, session of small group discussion. And then there's an exit survey that can be used to tell lawmakers what their constituents really think about a particular issue after this kind of three-hour, five-hour event. Um, and what I did when I started getting involved was say, um, it's really hard to get a bunch of people to read a 25-page document before they show up. But uh, it would be less hard for them to watch a show. So um, through um, working with Robert Cavalier at Carnegie Mellon's uh, Program for Deliberative Democracy, we came up with a new model called Deliberative Theater that replaces the long briefing document with a theatrical performance that dramatizes the issues. Um, so the first one that we did was uh, about uh, the Marcella Shale drilling that was going on in and around Pennsylvania at the time. Um, There's a huge natural gas deposit under a large swath of the Northeast. Um, and drilling for it and getting it out of the ground is a controversial practice called fracking that can disrupt the environment. It can, um, if not done properly, poison water supplies. Um, it's just, it's noisy and messy. Um, and it also displaces people. Um, and this was very, very controversial in Pennsylvania. And so um, I wrote um, a 25-minute play that dramatized through scenes and through monologues the different perspectives um, about the Marcel Shale. And then we went through the rest of the deliberative uh, process 
um, as I had just outlined, except just without the briefing materials. Um, and what struck me through that process and also helping out and becoming a trained moderator and doing these sort of what are called deliberative loops on the campus uh, community um, was that rather than people moving to one extreme or the other as a group, everybody comes to the middle. So if you do before surveys, people are usually pretty polarized. So one of, you know, um, gay marriage was one that they did in the um, greater Pittsburgh area. Um, a couple of years before I got involved, they did a deliberative loop on gay marriage. And, um, you know, people were either for it or against it. And after the deliberative uh, event, everyone had kind of grouped around the middle and could see things from the other side. So that's a very long lead up to um, after the election, I emailed my former professor and I said, use me. I want to get re-involved um, in this. And um, one of my uh, colleagues has since spun off a consultancy group called The Art of Democracy that is kind of um, about taking the deliberative structure and breaking it and changing it in different ways um, because sometimes it might not be possible to get a representative sample um, of the population to all gather here for three hours. Sometimes you need to incorporate different stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm really excited to, moving forward, do theater that is specifically for a political purpose, but not a specific political purpose. Okay. <laughs> not like pushing one agenda or the other, but theater as a forum for democracy to happen. And I think that it's a really powerful way to make a human connection very quickly to other people um, and that you cannot build unity and consensus without uh, first engendering empathy. And the way that that's done is actually meeting face-to-face -face with other people. That is fascinating structurally. It's um, also fascinating that it comes, that it generally has that effect. Yes. I mean, you don't hear any of these processes that it's like, at the end of it, we all saw each other's side a little bit better. That's almost no, Yeah. That, that I, I can't think of an equivalent uh, process uh, anywhere inside of art or out of it right it's now. It's honestly incredible. And had I not witnessed it myself, I would have said like, that's not possible. But I've literally watched people talk about pornography, abortion, po community policing, and no one is yelling. No one is gay marriage. They're talking about gay marriage. And people are saying, like, I don't I believe two men should be able to marry each other. And someone else is saying, well, I don't. And here's why. And they're talking to each other like people because they are both people. <laughs> and it's like really just amazing to watch what happens when you put real humans together and let them talk it out. And then you do get at the end really valuable statistical information about how the population, really your population of whatever area you're governing, feels about a certain topic. And it's 
both accurate and it helps because then you come away and everybody kind of knows somebody else and they've all talked to the experts who are going to tell you what the religious point of view is, what the legal point of view is, what the historical precedent is. Um, And it's just a really wonderful and positive uh, way. And I'm excited to move forward and get to use theater for that. So I'm, I'm very excited and, and I, I think like a lot of us have been asking ourselves, like what's next and what do we do now and how do we use our art to make a difference, like a, a positive difference and not just in individual people's lives, but in the country in general. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited that I feel like I have an outlet for that through deliberative theater. So I'm excited for that. That's a beautiful answer to that question. And if yeah. and if anybody wants to get involved, let, I, let me know. I will say that. So Shannon, <laughs> Shannon's any information contacting Shannon um, and more information about her work and this work, which I'm going to write into, is available on our website, chargingmoosemedia.com. Uh, under the podcast tab slash at the table podcast slash at the table podcast guys thank you so much for having me and for choosing my play i'm so honored thank you so much for being here this was fabulous utterly gorgeous tell us uh what's your what's your your like your twitter handle where can people find you i am on twitter at sl deep um my last name is deep Uh, it's not just a weird thing that i chose um and (laughs) and what's the song salad at Song Salad Cast. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. We're on whatever million other podcasting. If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably on that forum. Cool. Yes. Probably. Yeah. Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. This episode of At The Table was sponsored by Haley Schippel, who designed our logo. It was mixed and edited by Marcus Thorne-Bagala, music by Marcus as well, and as always, our hosts are Rachel Flynn and Ned Donovan. We'd like to take a minute to thank the cast and Shannon Deep for giving us her play to produce. At The Table is produced by Charging Loose Media, telling great stories through new media. And as always, please rate and subscribe. Every little bit helps towards helping us continue to produce new seasons of the show and develop new work. Hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll catch you soon.